friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. from our seats and today we start a brand new series on the Beatitudes and just to let you know the Beatitudes is from chapter 5 of the book of Matthew all the way to chapter 7 but today we will just be reading verses 3 to 12 because that is the section that we will be talking about for the next few Sundays so at the count of three we'd all like to be able to read this aloud One, two, let's read. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's come before the Lord in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we would like to thank you and bless you for this lovely Sunday morning. We'd like to thank you for the privilege of worshiping and glorifying your holy name. Our hearts have been greatly warmed by the songs that we sung, and we rejoice, O God, because indeed you and you alone are our supreme treasure. And there is nothing in this world which will give us joy and peace. You alone are the source and the giver of peace and joy. And we thank you, O Lord, that you found us, that you chose us, that you elected us, that you brought us into your kingdom of marvelous light. Lord, we are eternally indebted to you. And today, once again, we pray that as we study your word, our hearts would be enriched, O God, nourished by your word. We pray, O God, that we will not resist the Holy Spirit as He speaks to our hearts. May we be obedient, O God. May we follow Your path. And may we, O God, glorify and honor Your name as we should. And Lord, I pray for myself that Your blessed anointing might be upon me, O God, so that this unction might produce radical changes in our lives. And Lord, whatever is going to be achieved today, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Introducing the Beatitudes, and I've entitled it as such because we will not dive into the text straight away because I believe that there are certain things that we need to understand to be able to properly interpret the Beatitudes, specifically this section of Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verses 3 all the way to verse 12. 
Now, if there is one sermon that has grabbed the attention, not only of Christians, but of the entire world, it is the Beatitudes. In fact, the interesting thing is that there are some people of various faiths and various religions who have studied the Sermon on the Mount because of its lofty moral ethics. Now, its interpretation and approach, however, has been quite diverse, and that is why there has been a lot of misinterpretation in so far as this passage is concerned. My task for you this morning is to describe the various approaches that have been used in interpreting this particular passage. And by doing that, I hope to be able to pick out and select for you that which I believe is the more accurate interpretation from Scripture, that which is most consistent with the Bible. Now, as we determine which approach is most consistent, our goal, obviously, is not just to learn here, but to be able to apply this in our own church as well as in our own individual lives. So let me just rattle off to you the different approaches. The first approach is the soteriological approach. Now, what is this approach? Now, let me give you a little definition. According to this approach, man may attain to salvation by following the Sermon on the Mount. Now, listen well to what this approach is saying. If you follow this Sermon on the Mount, it will save your soul. That is what they're teaching. So, in other words, it is teaching salvation by good works. Now, what they are saying is that regardless of religion, whether you're a Jew, you are a Mohammedan, a Buddhist, or a Hindu, you can attain to salvation by simply following the Sermon on the Mount. Now, there's a problem with that, of course. Why? Because the high standards of the Sermon on the Mount are humanly, listen well, humanly unattainable. It is humanly unattainable. If this sermon were the basis of salvation, I would like to be able to say no one could be saved in this world. No one could be saved. Now take, for instance, some examples like, uh, take a look at verse 9. It says, blessed are the peacemakers. Now when the Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers, God is not simply concerned about putting up an external facade of peacemaking. What the Bible is really concerned about is that we follow not simply the letter of the law, but even the spirit of the law. And this is something that Jesus continually preached in the Gospels. He said, for example, if you hate your brother, you have already committed murder. So what Jesus is saying is that hatred equals murder. Hatred equals murder. So you have a problem in that because you can be smiling on the outside and yet be boiling with rage on the inside. And that makes you unrighteous. Now take, for example, another passage in verses 11 and 12. 
It says, Rejoice. Rejoice when? When people cast insults at you and persecute you and falsely accuse you. Now, let me ask you this question. Is it really our natural response that when we are insulted, when we are persecuted, when people accuse us falsely, that we respond in rejoicing? Is that the natural affection or emotion that comes out of us? Our natural response, obviously, would not be to rejoice, but maybe to get angry, maybe to grieve, or maybe to even have this temptation to retaliate against some people. So once again, we will fail in this area. Now remember, the Bible says, if you stumble at one point of the law, just one point, if you stumble at one point of the law, you have broken the whole commandment. So if that is the case, who then can possibly be saved with such very high standards? Consider also that the word blessed means happy. Say happy, please. Now, realistically, from a human point of view, it would be humanly impossible to be happy when you start applying the code of ethics that we find here in the Beatitudes, and I will show that to you in a bit. Miserable may be the more realistic human response. So here's what the world says. The world does not say, for example, that happy are the poor in spirit, all right? Because that is what the Beatitudes say. What does the world say? The world says, happy are those who are proud in spirit. The world does not say, happy are those who mourn. But they say, happy are those who are happy in their vices and in sin. The world does not say, happy are those who are gentle. The world says, happy are those who can show that they are tough and strong. The world does not say, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The world says, happy are those who can live their lives in reckless abandon, doing whatever they want. The world does not say, happy are those who are merciful. The world says, happy are those who think only of themselves. The world does not say, happy are those who are pure in heart. The world says, happy are those who taste bits and pieces of the world. The world does not say, happy are those who are peacemakers. The world says, rather, happy are those who do not allow themselves to be trampled upon and are able to fight back. The world does not say, happy are you when people cast insults on you, when you are persecuted, when people say all kinds of evil. The world rather says, happy are those who can file a case in court when one is defamed. So you will notice here the difference between the world described as cosmos in the Greek, which basically speaks about the world system, and how people who are in the Lord respond. There is really a wide disparity. There is really a wide difference. And so if people hope to be saved 
by the Beatitudes, then they do not have any hope whatsoever. This moral ethic is humanly impossible without the nature of Jesus Christ. As somebody once said, and I like what this person said, he said, one cannot behave like Christ unless he becomes like Christ. Let me say it again. One cannot behave like Christ unless he becomes like Christ. So the bottom line here is you must be born again. You must have the life of God. You must have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit because it is the Holy Spirit that will sanctify and purify us. It is the Holy Spirit that will cause us to be obedient to His statutes. But you cannot be born again and you cannot be Christ-like unless you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, believing the gospel, that we are not saved at all by good works, but rather we are saved by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ in Calvary. After He had paid for all our sins, only the atoning grace of Christ can save us and bring in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that can radically change our lives. So, the soteriological approach is a wrong approach. Now, here's another approach. It is called the sociological approach. Now, what is this approach? Now, let me define this for you. They believe that the Sermon in the Mount has in mind the salvation of society. Say, salvation of society. So according to this approach, the world will attain to a utopian state, an idealistic state, wherein there will be peace, there will be justice, there will be harmony, and there will be no more wars. It will be a beautiful world. They, would, they say the home would be different as there would be no divorces, there would be no separation. The business and political climate would change as there would be no more corruption and there would be no more oppression. There would be absolute fairness in business dealings. Now, what's the problem here? The problem is this. While it is true that if we follow all that the Sermon on the Mount tells us, we would in fact attain to a utopian state we need to be mindful that our fallen nature, our sinful nature, will not allow us to follow everything that the Sermon on the Mount tells us. Let's take the case of no more wars, for example. The United Nations was organized to promote world peace, and yet up until today, wars continue to threaten our world. Since 3,600 B.C., the world has only known around 292 years of peace. During this time period, there have been close to 15,000 15, wars, and the number of deaths are nearing 4 billion people. On the average, there is only one year of peace, for every 13 years of war. 
More than 8,000 treaties of peace have only remained in force for only an average of two years. So once again, is it possible to attain to a utopian state? Well, if we could follow the Sermon on the Mount, that could be attained. But as I mentioned to you, here's our problem. Our problem is our sinful nature. Did not David say in the Psalms that in sin did my mother conceive me? And what he was talking about there is our natural propensity towards sin because we have this sinful nature, having partaken of the nature of Adam and Eve after they had fallen, after they had partaken of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Another thing to add is that the improvement of society was not the main goal of Jesus Christ when He came here on earth. What was the goal of Jesus Christ? The Bible says He came to seek and save the lost. Amen? That was the purpose of Christ. He came to seek and save the lost. And so once again, this sociological approach will not do. Now, there's another approach that is being uh, proposed. It is called the penitential approach. Now, what is this approach? By definition, they say the Sermon on the Mount makes people see who they really are, sinners in need of God. Now, this would drive them to seek after God. Now, once again, do we see uh, a problem in this particular approach? Now, while it may be true that this would be the effect of reading the Sermon on the Mount, I would like to be able to tell you that when Jesus Christ preached this particular message, He was not preaching to unbelievers. Let me say it again. When Jesus Christ preached the Sermon on the Mount, He was not preaching to unbelievers. So the question is, to whom was He speaking to? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ was speaking to those who were already His disciples. Now, of course, we need to know that there are always genuine disciples and there are fake disciples. But let us note that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus was not talking to the crowd. Jesus was not talking to the lost. Jesus was not talking to unbelievers, but He was talking to those who professed belief and faith in Christ. Now, where do we see that? Let me prove my point. Take a look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. Here's what it says. When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain. Now, notice what it says. When Jesus saw the crowds, what did He do? He went up on the mountain, and then, and after He sat down, who were the ones who came? His disciples came to Him. In other words, based on this passage, Jesus seemed to have avoided the crowds, the multitude. Rather, His desire here was to address not the lost, not the unbelievers, but His desire was to address those who had professed faith in Him. In verse 13 of the same chapter, notice that the Lord Jesus Christ said to His disciples, You are the salt and the light of the world. 
Now, you cannot say that of unbelievers, can you? Amen? You cannot say to unbelievers, you are the salt and the light of the world. Because they live in darkness. So who was Jesus referring to? Whom was Jesus referring to? He was referring to those who had professed faith. That is why he was saying, you are the salt and the light of the world. And then when the Lord Jesus Christ began to instruct the disciples on the Lord's Prayer, or what some people call the Disciples' Prayer, how does it all begin? Our what? Our Father who art in heaven. Now, what does that tell you? You cannot even start praying unless, first of all, you have a relationship with the Father. Amen? You can only call Him our Father when you are related to Him. Once again, people in the world cannot say that. They cannot address God the Father, our Father. Also, if you take a look at the sermon, the sermon was not intended for the salvation of sinners, but rather a code of ethics. Could you say code of ethics? Say it louder, please. Code of ethics. It was designed as a code of ethics for service among believers in Christ. If you take a look at the topics, they have to do with service and rewards, among others. Topics only us believers can appreciate. Consider also the impossibility of telling unbelievers to follow these code of ethics when they simply do not have the power to follow them. You first need to be transformed. To reform, you need to be transformed by the power of God. Take, for example, uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, how does that translate when it comes to the husbands? Well, it means this, that you are willing, you should be willing to die for your wife, all right, as Christ died for the church. And dying may not even be literal. It might be dying to yourself every single day so that you could be able to serve your wife. Now, I know we made our marriage vows and we made those promises. But you and I know that we're, we're greatly challenged every single day to be able to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Then let's talk about the women. The Bible says that wives submit to your husbands in everything. Now, be honest, women. Is that an easy thing to do? Liars go to hell. Is that an easy thing to do? No, it's not. In fact, you may be able to submit to your husband maybe during the honeymoon season, but then later on you realize it becomes a challenge, most especially when you have differing opinions and perspectives on certain matters. But here's the point. Even before Paul talked about husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, even before talked to the women and said, women submit to your husbands in everything, he first of all talked about being filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, here's the point. 
You cannot even follow those directives in your marriage unless, listen well, unless you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit has control of your life. It means that you yield yourself, you surrender yourself to the Holy Spirit, to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, to what the Scripture says. And so you cannot even start obeying them unless you are filled with the Holy Spirit. But then you need to backtrack even a little bit because you cannot even talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit unless you go to Ephesians chapter 2 where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Here's the point. The chronological order is this. You must be saved, first of all. And when you are saved, then you could be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, then you can love your wife as Christ loved the church. Then you can submit to your husband in everything. So it all begins with salvation. So you go to the the code of ethics found in the Sermon on the Mount. How is it even possible for unbelievers who do not love God and who love the world with all their hearts even begin to think about following the Beatitudes? It's impossible. People need a changed heart before they can change and apply these high moral ethics. Amen? So you need to be born again. You need to come to Christ. And I believe most of us know that before we came to a saving knowledge of Christ, we were all struggling. We wanted to be righteous. We wanted to do the good things. But then, how did our life pan out? We were constantly doing the wrong things. And why was that happening? Because of our sinful nature. And when you become born again, what happens is the divine nature of God comes upon you. The Bible says, Peter says, we have been made partakers of divine nature. Now, when you have that divine nature, you now have the power to overcome sin and temptation. Otherwise, you will constantly be falling and failing. Now, there's another approach that has been taken. It's called the millennial approach. Now, I'm going to give you a little study on eschatology. Now, this is a little deeper, but then again, it's something that we need to be instructed with because we don't want going through the Scriptures and not understanding what the Bible has to say. And one of the basic things you need to understand is the timeline of how things will come about in the future. Eschatology means the doctrine of future things. And right here on the screen, all right, You have a timeline of events that have taken place and of events that will take place in the future as well. Now, of course, we have the Old Testament that is done, all right? We know it has been completed. And then we go to the Gospels where we find the Beatitudes, all right? Now, here's what happened. As Jesus Christ presented Himself to the Jewish people, And and as he began to preach a, a, a message of repentance so that they could be part of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, 
he was rejected. His message and his person was rejected. It reached a climax. And what was that climax? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so because the Jews had rejected Jesus Christ, there was now a divine time out. Could you say divine time out? There was now a divine time out in Jesus' dealings with the Jews. All right? So what happened? It was then that Jesus Christ said in Matthew 16, I will build the church. I will build my church. And what that simply means is that the church was something that was going to happen in the future. Now, when did the church get born? The church got born in the book of Acts, specifically chapter 2. And that is why you find the church there. Now, here's the question. Will the church continue on forever? The answer is no. The church will not continue forever. By that, I mean its earthly existence. Now, why do we say that? Because there is an event that is described in the Bible as the rapture. In the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says, we shall be caught up in the clouds with Christ. So those who are genuine ones will be taken away. They would be uh, caught up in the clouds, and they will now go to be with Christ in heaven. So the church would now cease to exist. Now, what's going to happen when the church gets raptured? Well, you will have the tribulation period. In the tribulation period, you will now have the reign of the Antichrist. The Antichrist will present himself as a political superman. And sadly, the world will follow him. He will come up with a one-world religion and a one-world government, and he will be successful. It is during that time, however, that the Jews' eyes would be opened, and they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The remnant of Jews would come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And by the way, the time of the greatest harvest of souls will take place in the tribulation period. Isn't that interesting? But you will have all those calamities. You will have all those meteor showers. You will have those, those earthquakes. You will have water pollution, wherein, you know, the sea would, would have dead fishes. It's going to be a terrible time. That's why it's called the tribulation period. Now, will that last forever? No. According to what the Bible says, it will only last for seven years. In fact, Jesus said, if those days, listen well, this is what he said, if those days were not cut short, no one would survive. Think about all the things that would happen during that time, including wars, including pestilence, including poverty, including famine. You and I have never experienced anything like that. The world has never experienced anything like that. Thankfully, it's only for seven years. Now, what's going to happen after that seven-year period? Well, Christ will come again. By the way, there's a difference between the rapture and the second coming. In the rapture, Jesus does not land on earth. He's, he'll only be on the clouds, all right? 
In the second coming, the Bible says he will land on earth. Where exactly? He will land on the Mount of Olives. It will be split into two parts, by the way. There will be a valley in between uh, the Mount of Olives. And there is where Jesus would land and he would now reign. Listen well. He would now reign as King of Kings all over the earth for 1,000 years. Now, listen well. Some of us have been praying the Lord's Prayer and we have not even understood it. Let me just recite to you the Lord's Prayer once again. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on, on, say it out, on, on earth. And that's why we've been praying the Lord's Prayer. We have been reciting it. We don't even understand it. God's kingdom, listen well, God's kingdom will come on earth. That exactly was what Jesus was offering to the Jews at that time when he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is, is coming. Or repent for the kingdom of heaven has come. And so again, friends, that was what Jesus was offering the Jews. But unfortunately, they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Jesus reigns, he will reign for 1,000 years. And listen well, if you are a genuine believer in Christ, listen well, you will be reigning together with Christ. Amen? You will be reigning together with Christ. But this is the question you need to ask yourself. Am I a genuine Christian? If you are, no problem. You will rule and you will reign together with Christ. So the millennium is otherwise known as the future earthly kingdom. Future earthly kingdom or the Davidic kingdom. Now the Sermon on the Mount applies according to the millennial approach. Listen well, this is the millennial approach. They say that the Sermon on the Mount applies to the 1,000 years, all right? The 1,000 years, um, the future earthly kingdom, because the listeners were Jewish who were primarily the recipients of the kingdom blessings promised to Abraham as well as to David. Now, what's the problem there? Here's the problem. The settings of the sermon does not fit, listen well, the conditions during the millennial kingdom or during the millennium. Why? Because in chapter 5, 11 to 12, it says, listen well, believers will be reviled and persecuted for Christ's sake. Reviled and persecuted. In the millennium, believers will no longer be reviled. They will no longer be persecuted. In fact, listen well, in the millennium, there will only be one religion and one faith. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. That will be the only faith in the millennium. Jesus will reign in this one world, all right? This one world religion, one world government under his rulership. And once again, 
there you will not find any persecution. In chapter 5, 13 to 14, it says that believers must be salt and light. What does that mean? It means that wickedness is still prevalent. Such is not true in the millennium because in the millennium, there will be universal righteousness. Imagine this, Jesus reigning and ruling over the whole world. Imagine this, you and I, believers in Christ, ruling and reigning together with Christ. Some of you will be ruling in Bogo. Some of you will be ruling in Midilien. I'm not kidding. We will rule and reign in some of these places. And during that time, Jesus will no longer be the silent lamb, but he will be the lion of Judah. And he will rule with an iron hand. And that is why at that time in the millennium, sin will be judged immediately. By the way, in the millennium, Satan will be bound for 1,000 years. In other words, there will now be no external temptation. And so if people sin in the millennium, it is of their own doing. Now, of course, you and I will no longer sin because you and I are in our glorified, resurrected bodies already. But the people in the tribulation period who are saved, all right, they will enter the millennium, all right, and they will have children. Now, those children obviously are not saved. And so, at that time, they still would need to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So, the problem, again, is that there will be universal righteousness, there will be universal justice, there will be no more wars, wickedness will not rule in that day, there will be just righteousness and prosperity, the presence of God, the peace of God, and therefore, it does not jive with the settings that Jesus Christ is speaking here. In fact, in Matthew 7, verse 15, there is the prevalence of false prophets. All throughout Matthew, it talks of thieves, tax collectors, unjust officials, and hypocrites. That will not be true in the millennium. So again, the millennial approach fails. Now we go to the next approach, the ecclesiastical approach. And what they say is that this sermon is addressed to the church. And they say it is a rule of life for believers. Now, do I find a problem with that? Actually, yes. Now, let's go back and let's take a look at the timeline once again. When Jesus Christ preached the Sermon on the Mount, listen well, he was not talking to the church. Now, who was Jesus Christ speaking to? He was speaking to the Jews. Say the Jews. Say this with me. He was speaking to the Jews. Say it out loud. He was speaking to the Jews. Say this with me. He was not speaking to the church. Now, why do we say that? Because the church was not yet in existence. The church was not yet in existence. When did the church exist? If you were listening to me a while ago, 
Acts chapter 1? Acts chapter 2. That's when the church was born. So this cannot be, this approach cannot apply because the church was not yet in existence. It is clear that the kingdom was in the process of being offered to the Jews during the earthly ministry of Christ. That is why in Matthew 4, 17, it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So to say the sermon was addressed to the church removes it out of its historical context, all right? And context is very important. The church came into existence as a result of the rejection of the Jews. That is why Jesus spoke of the church in the future tense. Take a look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. All right, let's take a look at it on the screen. Could you read this for me at the count of three? One, two, read, please. All right, it says, I will build my church. Let me ask you, is that past tense, present tense, or future tense? Say it out loud, please. It is future tense. So once again, it cannot be referring to the church. That is why the church was referred to as a mystery. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, please. And we'll flash it on the screen. Could you read this for me again at the count of three? One, two, read. Now notice, how is the church called? It is called the mystery of Christ. Now why is it called the mystery of Christ? Now something is called a mystery when you do not see it in the Old Testament. Now do you see the church in the Old Testament? No. All you see is the nation of Israel. The church only came into the picture in the New Testament. And that is why Paul calls the church a mystery. It was yet future at the time of Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, there are definitely applications to us in the church, which I will show to you later. So, which is the right approach? If the soteriological approach is not right, if the sociological approach is not right, if the penitential approach is not right, if the millennial approach is not right, if the ecclesiastical approach is not right, which approach is the right one? I call it the interim approach. The interim approach. Say interim approach. So say this with me, just so we could retain it in our minds. The interim approach is the right approach. Say it again. The interim approach is the right approach. All right? Now, let me describe to you what the interim approach is. 
because of the rejection of the Jews, there is now a huge time lapse before the second coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of the millennial kingdom. There is now a gap because as I mentioned to you, in God's dealings with the nation of Israel, there was a divine time out. All right? God will only deal with the nation of Israel in the tribulation period. So, what do we make of the Beatitudes then? It is an ethic for the time before the establishment of the millennial kingdom. I'd like you to catch this. So please repeat after me. It is an ethic. Louder, please. It is an ethic for the time before the establishment of the millennial kingdom. So it is in this sense, listen well, that the Sermon on the Mount applies to the church and also the tribulation saints. Now, let's pull up the time frame once again. Now, could you notice, do you notice the, the line there, which is orange? Do you see that? Or yellow-orange, I would say. So you will notice the yellow-orange is what is the interim period. So that includes the time when Jesus, was, Jesus Christ was preaching in the Gospels. That includes the time of the church. That still includes the time of the rapture. And that includes still the tribulation period. So the Sermon on the Mount, according to this timeline, is applicable in all these time periods wherein you have the orange line. When the second coming takes place, it is no longer applicable. Why? Because the millennium has already taken place. The Davidic kingdom has already taken place. Now, having said that, we can only apply the code of ethics. We can only apply the Sermon on the Mount if you and I become born again. That is why you read the Sermon on the Mount to people who do not know Christ. It will not appeal to them at all. In fact, the result, my dear brothers and sisters, is when you start telling people to live according to the code of ethics in the Sermon on the Mount, is that they will persecute you. They will hate you. Why? Because they love darkness. They do not love the light. They love darkness. And so once we start ramming the Beatitudes down the throat of people, guess what's going to happen? They will persecute us. They will insult us. They will mock us. And they will say, that is not the way to live. And they will say, it's, it's good for you, but definitely it's not good for me. People right now live in relativism. People live right now according to their preferences. There was one person who came out uh, and did a, a talk in a hospital among doctors. And this is so interesting because he said there is a difference between sex and gender. He says there is a difference between sex and gender. By birth, he says, 
A person could be a male or a female. But listen to what he is saying next. But gender is a choice. Are you listening? Gender is a choice. So I can choose to be a woman today, and tomorrow I can choose to be a man. And the following day, I can choose to be a woman again. So it, it, it doesn't really matter how I was born. It is really a matter of choice. That is how the world is thinking right now. Life is now a matter of preference. Righteousness or being right is a matter of preference. And unfortunately, people have it all blurred out. They have blurred out all of morality. Everything has become hazy right now. That is why, friends, let me tell you, the Sermon on the Mount can only be applied with people who have Christ in their hearts and in their lives. And that's why, friends, if you have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, you have received the empowering of the Holy Spirit and the power of God in the inner man is able to cause you to obey and follow the statutes of God. Now, if you give the Lord a big hand, please. If you are able to apply it, then it means you have genuine faith in Christ. As I mentioned to you right at the very beginning, there are those who are genuine disciples and there are those who are fake disciples. Now, how do you distinguish between those who are fake and those who are genuine? The Lord Jesus Christ said, By the fruit shall you know them. If people really have Christ in their lives, it will show in their lives. Their lives would be radically different from those in the world. Now, as we think about this, and as we will now begin to have a series on the Beatitudes, we need to follow the instruction of Paul when he said in Corinthians, that we need to test and examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. I read to you the Beatitudes a while ago. I'd like to read it once again. And tell me if this is something that you love and will sincerely and earnestly obey. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Here's your response. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now think about this long and hard. Is this how my life looks like? Do I see myself being poor in spirit? Do I see myself mourning over sin? Do I see myself as a gentle person, not rude, not abrasive, but gentle? Do I see myself as hungering and thirsting for righteousness? I, I want to meditate on the Word of God. I want to pray. I want to worship. I want to serve God. I want to evangelize. I want to preach the Word of God. Is that what you see in your life? Am I merciful? Do I show kindness? Do I see needs everywhere? Am I pure in heart? Do I, do, I have, do I not have evil and personal motives? Do I not have a personal agenda? And when people persecute me, am I happy? Am I a peacemaker or am I a troublemaker? And when people insult and persecute me, Am I happy? Am I rejoicing? Am I glad? Am I emotionally high? Hopefully, hopefully that is how we respond. So, once again, brothers and sisters, as we take a look at the Sermon on the Mount, do we see that? Is that when we look at ourselves in a mirror, is that what you see? So the next few Sundays is going to be a time of purification and cleansing. I would even dare say it will be a time of repentance on our part if we are open to the Lord. Dear brothers and sisters, as we come to a close this morning, now that we have determined the correct approach to the Beatitudes, we can now proceed to studying this in-depth and begin walking the heights of spirituality, begin walking the life of the Sermon on the Mount. It's quite interesting that Jesus chooses a mountain to preach this, because this, these are really high and lofty things that should be seen in our lives. And friends, when this is seen in our lives, many people will say, that indeed 
our God is alive. Amen? Our God is alive. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes at this time. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O God, for this, this blessed morning. We thank you, O Lord, for the Beatitudes. And we thank you, dear Lord, that these are things we could apply only because we have Christ in our hearts. And we thank you, O God, that you chose us, you elected us, you predestined us, O God, to be your sons and your daughters. And we have nothing to boast of, O God. We can only glory in you and in you alone. As we reflect on our lives, O God, we thank you, O God, that we see a reflection of Christ. Indeed, nothing else matters except Christ and Christ alone. And Father, we thank you once again that we could give our tithes, our grace gifts, and our offerings. Lord, use them for the glory of your holy name. And Lord, whatever has been achieved this morning, we give you back all the thanks and praise in Jesus' mighty name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.